Uh, this morning we're going to be studying from Matthew chapter 12 and continuing our study through the book of Matthew. Um, we're coming to the end of a section in Matthew. Uh, if you remember, he has um, talked to us about how uh, blessed are the ones who are not offended by me. Remember John the Baptist's disciples come and they're, uh, they're, they're trying to figure out whether Jesus is really uh, the, son of, the Son of God, the Messiah. And they're trying to ask, you know, are, are you the one we should look for or should we look for another? Uh, and Jesus makes this point, you know, blessed are the ones who are not offended by me and don't take offense at these things that I'm doing. And he basically walks through and helps them see all his miracles and all the mercy that he shows to everybody, making it very clear that he is fulfilling uh, what the prophet Isaiah had spoken, uh, that he would be the Messiah who comes and heals all the wounds and makes people uh, understand who God really is. So, as we've gone through chapter 12, we've seen that the Pharisees are very offended by Jesus. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 12, uh, they, they look at all the disciples of Jesus and, and they say, you guys are, are evil. You guys are uh, breaking the law on the, of the Sabbath and they're ready to condemn them. And Jesus makes it very clear that they don't understand the law. Uh, that God desires mercy, not sacrifice, that they are instead pursuing sacrifices so much that they're throwing mercy out of the window. They don't even care about uh, being merciful toward the poor who are in need of food. They're just all about their laws. Uh, last week, we, we jumped into the next section where Jesus has healed a demon-oppressed man who is also mute and uh, uh, blind, he does this great miracle, and they say, you're doing this by Beelzebul. You're doing this by the Lord of uh, the flies, the Lord of, of the dung pile. And they're essentially blaspheming uh, the Holy Spirit who has given Jesus this power, this ability to, to heal this man. And Jesus comes back with a statement of logical truth. This makes no sense. You're saying Satan is casting out Satan. <laughs> and if that's the truth then what I'm saying is true. The kingdom of God is upon you. This is happening, just as I am saying. And so what's really happening is I am uh, binding up the strong man before I plunder his goods. And this is the way he illustrates it. Uh, and he says, but you guys, you guys are evil. Uh, he says, you need to make your, your trees good and the fruit good instead of being evil. Uh, and he provides them this, this warning against they're evil. And then we get to verse 38, and we see the Pharisees are responding to his statement against them. They have evil treasure in their heart, and so what they're saying is evil, and they're going to be condemned. And the Pharisees answer him, verse 38, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asked for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So their response is, okay, Jesus, you want us to, to repent and to change and to turn and follow you. We'll do it. Just give us a sign so that we know that you're really the guy and then we'll do it. You know, you, you show us for sure that we know without a shadow of a doubt that you are the Messiah and then everything will be okay, then I can turn and follow you, and, and everything will go great. Does this sound familiar to anybody here? Um, 
Do you know somebody who's looking for God to give them a sign? Uh, to give them an understanding of the way they should go or of, of how they should live their life. They might think, well, these bad things are happening to me, therefore I must need to get closer to God. Or these bad things are happening to me, therefore God must not love me. And they're looking at all the events and they're looking for a sign. They're looking for some indication, some idea. Have we ever felt that way? Have we ever looked for a sign and, and hope that God would give us something so that we can really know for sure, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that this is really God and that this is really what he wants us to do? Well, notice that the Pharisees here are looking for a sign. And Jesus' response is an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Well, that doesn't sound very good, does it? Um, an evil and adulterous generation looks for a sign. You get the picture. Jesus is not going to just give them a sign. He could bring down manna from heaven. You know, He could part the waters. He could, he could cause a big a swarm of flies to come upon them after they've made such an insult. Right? Uh, he could do a number of signs. But he says an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Why does he say that? Well, you think about the generations before, and you might think, well, maybe he's referring to something else. And you start thinking about the Old Testament and all the miracles that are done in the Old Testament, really there's not a lot. I mean, there's, a, there's like one, one-offs, you know, there's, there's men who just have this one miracle that they, that they do. A prophet might have one miracle. Uh, Joshua might have one miracle. You know, typically it's just like this one uh, event that there's a miracle that, that shows that God is with them. But you have two men in the Old Testament that really stand out for their miracles, really three. Uh, the first one is Moses, and the second and third, I guess, are Elijah and Elisha. And one thing that really sticks out as you go to the time period of Moses, as he does all these signs for the people, as he brings all these plagues upon the Egyptians, as he brings down the manna, as he, as he, uh, as, as he goes into the place where the glory of the Lord fills, as he has all these wonderful, mighty works of bringing up quail and, and providing water from the rock, all these mighty miracles that show that he's from God, what did the people look like? What was that generation like? Wow, they were pretty bad, right? They were evil and they were adulterous. <laughs> what about Elijah and Elisha? Here God sends this prophet to Ahab uh, to tell him there's going to be a drought. And there's a drought for three years because Elijah said so. And then there's all kinds of miracles that follow God. Brings down fire from heaven. Uh, and, and causes the sacrifice to get burned up. Everybody knows this is, you know, this is from God. There's this sign that's very apparent. Elisha has even more signs as he lives. Uh, and what is the situation of that generation? Are they just righteous and good and, and perfect? No. They're rebellious and defiant. They're pursuing Baal rather than pursuing God. And so Jesus looks at history and says... An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. That's, that's, that's the condition of this, the generation that he has before him. And he recognizes that just like all of those miracles, <clears throat> there is more than a sign that is needed to believe. 
A sign does not fix the problem. As Moses does all these signs, the people are still rebellious. As Elijah does all these signs, the people are still rebellious. They still pursue the Baals. They still pursue the evil. The sign doesn't fix anything. And how many times do we think maybe if God would just give the world a sign, then they would know and then they would change their ways? Kind of what Elijah thought. But no. There's more that's needed than just a sign. It needs to be something bigger. It needs to be something more meaningful. But Jesus tells them, no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. Interesting. Except the sign of Jonah. So these stubborn, rebellious, hard-hearted Pharisees are not going to be given a sign at this point. But he says there will be a sign given to them, and it will be the sign of Jonah. He says in verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the sign. The sign, the thing that happened to Jonah is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. But we remember Jonah, right? Well, most of us remember the belly of the fish story, right? <laughs> that's, that's, that's the extent of our understanding of Jonah. But whenever we start thinking about Jonah a little bit more, we understand maybe there's something else Jesus is trying to get across here. There's an underlying message as he says they will receive the sign of Jonah. Uh, if you remember, Jonah was a prophet of the northern kingdom of Israel, and he was commanded to go up into Assyria, the, in, the, in the, the great city of Assyria, Nineveh, to preach to them that they might repent and change their ways. So here's an Israelite going to the enemy's main city to preach to them, repent, and change your ways. Jonah says, no way. He gets on a boat and he heads as far away from Nineveh as he can. You remember? He's this stubborn uh, prophet who refuses to be merciful to these enemies like God is wanting to be merciful toward them. Now that's interesting in the context of what we've been studying here in Matthew chapter 12. And as you continue in the story of Jonah, you see that he seems to repent after three days in the belly of the fish, he seems to change his ways and understand the sign that God gives him that he is able to control all these things and that he wants him to go and he's going to go. So Jonah goes and he preaches in Nineveh. He tells him, repent. And then the people of Nineveh put on sackcloth and ashes and they repent better than anybody has ever repented in the Bible. And in chapter 4 of Jonah... We see in the first four verses, Jonah's angry. And Jonah go, looks up to God and says, See, I told you. I knew you were going to do that. He says, That's why I went to Tarshish. I knew you were going to be merciful and, and patient and compassionate. I knew you were going to forgive them of their iniquities, and you were not going to bring down judgment against them for all the evil that they've done. And God responds, Do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Do you do well to be angry? You think there's some kind of insinuation in Jesus bringing up Jonah in this chapter that is so full of these Pharisees being stubborn and rebellious and, get this, unmerciful. Unmerciful. 
the statement that Jesus is trying to make is you're not doing the will of God. You're not pursuing who God is and living and becoming like him. You're like this stubborn prophet Jonah. And you're going to receive a sign just like he did. As, I, as, as he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the, the heart of the earth, in the grave. And he says three days, three nights. Don't let that trip you up. It's an idiom, a way of talking about three days uh, in the tomb. And, and so Jesus says after that, uh, there, there's going to be a resurrection. This is the picture he's given. The resurrection will be a sign for you, and that's what you must understand. Then after that, he says, verse 41, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now Jesus says, essentially, you remember the story of Jonah? Yeah, you're like the prophet Jonah, and I want you to be like Nineveh. <laughs> and, and I want you to repent and change your ways. But because you won't do that, these Gentiles, they hate Gentiles, these Gentiles are going to rise up in the judgment, and they're going to condemn you. Then he goes to the queen of Sheba and says, she's going to rise up in the judgment and condemn you because you've got something greater than the prophet Jonah speaking to you. And you've got someone greater than Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived on the earth. You've got someone greater than Solomon right here before you, and yet you will refuse to believe to repent, and to follow after me. What a condemnation and what a statement that Jesus is making that they just refuse to see. They ask for a sign, and Jesus says, no, you don't need a sign. You need to change your hearts. You need to truly believe and repent and, and turn your life around to follow me like Nineveh did. And you need to put on sackcloth and ashes and, and humble yourself before the Lord. The next section of this chapter kind of throws us off. Verses 43 through 45. He says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So, it also, so, it al so also will it be with this evil generation. Notice the tie of the evil generation from before. But why does he bring this kind of parable up at this point in the story? Uh, you know, how does an explanation of unclean spirits <laughs> help us understand anything in this context? Well, picture this parable with me for just a second. Here's a person who's demon-possessed, okay? We don't really know exactly what that looks like. I don't, I don't think I've seen anybody demon-possessed to understand that fully, but, 
The picture in the New Testament is they don't have control over their own body. That demon throws him into seizures, throws him into fires, uh, causes them to, to have all kinds of um, uncontrolled actions, right? And so here's a man who he says it has this unclean spirit within him, and it has been cast out, and it goes through waterless places seeking rest. Waterless places is a picture of being in a desert, right? I have need, I'm, I'm wanting some nourishment, some, some, some rest, and there's no rest, and the demon is just, is just out of it, you know, has no, no hope. And he says, you know what, I'm going to be like the prodigal son. I'm going to just go back and see if there's room for me in, in my old house. And he goes back, and he sees that it's all cleaned up, and, and it's ready for him to come right back in. And he says, man, there's enough room here. I'm going to go get some of my friends, and we're all going to live here. And the whole body is full of demons. Wow. That's a, that's a really neat picture. But what in the world does that mean? <laughs> Why does Jesus say this? Well, there's a number of explanations that are given. Uh, and I think the, the most popular one does make sense, but I tend to, to go more trying to understand the context to maybe what Matthew is saying. If you go back to verse 22, you notice this whole dialogue begins with a demon-oppressed man who is blind and mute. And he receives the blessing of having the demon cast out of him. And then the Pharisees come in, and they try to persuade everybody that Jesus is doing this by Beelzebub. Now, you're the demon-oppressed man who's now been freed, and you're, you're able to see and you're able to speak. But the Pharisees, those religious leaders, they say he did that by Beelzebub. He did that by uh, Satan. Maybe you're tempted to then say, well, then I probably don't need to follow him. But man, I got this blessing. I'm pretty excited about having this blessing. I'm going to go enjoy my life now that I'm freed from all this. I, I got one over on Satan. I'm not going to follow after this guy. Here Jesus would come in and say, when that unclean spirit goes out, it's going to find its way back. And when it does, and it finds out that you have not filled yourself with the things of God, filled yourself with the things, uh, the will of God, and, and decided, because I've been blessed by God, I'm now going to go do God's work and God's will. Whenever you just left your life open and empty of anything of any value or any meaning, that demon is going to come back and find, well, the house is clean. It's ready for me to come right back in. And, it's gonna, and he's going to invite more in, and it's going to be even worse than it was before. I think this parable is, is teaching everybody that as they receive these blessings from God, they're being, they're being warned not to miss the opportunity that is being given to them. They're being warned not to receive the healing and then turn around and deny the one who has healed them. Because that would be ridiculous. And he says if you do that, the last state will be worse than the first. He's trying to encourage them not to continue to have this empty house. Once your house is in order and you've been freed from the oppression and the suffering that you once had, don't just be satisfied with a house that's in order. Instead, pursue God's will and God's ways. I think that's 
the picture that he's giving us in this section. Some people say once the Pharisees uh, repent, then they don't turn around and do God's will and all that. I, don't, I think it makes sense more in the context to go back to verse 22 uh, and see that he's teaching them that you must then turn your life around and seek after God. So if, if that's the understanding, if that makes sense, then let's talk about how we can apply all of these things that we've been studying in chapter 12, and then we'll talk about the very last section in chapter 12 at the end. First of all, the primary message of all this chapter, really this all goes together, but there's too much complicated stuff for me to do it all in one sermon. I could have had you here for an hour and 30 minutes, and everybody been happy with that, I'm sure. Um, but I decided to split it up. But if you look at all this chapter, what you see is the Pharisees are just stubborn. They're denying Christ, and then they're going out and trying to deceive everybody else to do the same thing so that they can be lifted up. And whenever Jesus makes all the arguments he can to them, and he helps them understand their evil, and he warns them, they turn around and they say, well, you just give us a sign, and then we'll know, and then we'll do it. Is there anybody here this morning who's looking for something more? God just hasn't revealed enough to you yet to make that decision to devote your life to God. I just need to see something else. I just need something more concrete. I just need uh, something so that I'll know for sure without a shadow of a doubt. It's not going to come. The problem is not evidence. Jesus died. He was resurrected. He was seen by more than 500 people. There's no doubt that he died. There's no doubt that he was resurrected. There's no doubt that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And if you still refuse that, it's not because the sign wasn't good enough. It's because there's a heart problem. There's a heart problem. And these Pharisees refused to be treated for their heart problem. They refused to listen. They refused to have good treasure in their heart. They had evil in their heart. And that's why they would not listen. And the second lesson that we specifically get from this is that those who are blessed can then be empty after receiving the blessing. You might look at that and say, oh, it's talking about demon possession. That has nothing to do with me. Well, think about it for a minute. Here's someone who's blessed by God, and then they turn around and they do nothing with the blessing. There may be people here this morning who are Christians, who have received God's blessings of forgiveness. They've received the cleansing of their sins and the forgiveness of their sins. They've been working to put their house in order and to get rid of all these sins in their lives. And, and then they accomplish that, and then their house is clean, and then they say, I'm all done. God has helped me, and he's helped remove all the evil out of my life. I'm empty. Well, now what? How are we going to respond? What are we going to fill our lives with? You see how this text tells us we need to fill our lives, our hearts, with an overflow of love for God, and an overflow of love for our mankind, uh, for all those around us, for our brethren, for the lost. We need our, our hearts, our, our, our bodies, our lives, our minds filled with doing the will and work of God 
Instead of just taking all that freedom, all that forgiveness and saying, okay, now I'm empty and I can go live for myself. We must instead be filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the will and the desire to do the things that God has put us on this earth to do. God didn't free us from sin so that we could go party and enjoy our freedom. He freed us so that we could then serve him faithfully and spread his glory throughout all the earth. That's why we're here. There's a danger that's being given to us, that's being presented to us, that if we remain empty, we become a breeding ground for evil. We need to evaluate and think about our lives. Since the day of our salvation, we've cleaned house maybe, we've put away sins, we've repented, we've made changes to our lifestyle. But are we slowly going downhill? Is our life slowly being turned back to the way that it was and becoming even worse? Do we see anger and wrath and malice and slander? Are we controlling and manipulative toward other people? Are we, are we hateful and harsh? Are we self-righteous? Have we filled ourselves with other forms of evil that are worse than our initial state? You see the warning here. God doesn't want us to be filled with the works of the flesh. He wants us to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit the fruit of righteousness. He wants us to become like him, not remain empty and not become worse than we once were, but become like him. So the question for us is, are we empty? Are we empty? Are we gradually growing worse after receiving the blessings from God? You know, if I'm honest with myself, as I was studying this, man, I was just bawling. I was like, man, sometimes I feel so empty. And I feel like I just haven't done enough. I haven't, haven't gone out like I should have. I haven't reached out to people. Uh, I haven't done enough to glorify God and serve God faithfully. And I was just sitting there thinking about it. And I'm just wondering, you know, how could I do more? How could I fill myself with goodness, the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I can know all those things. How do I fill myself with them? That's what Jesus is trying to help us understand. That's what our pursuit is. That we would have a good treasure in our heart that would then overflow in our words and in our actions. We need to be filled with God's word. In order to be filled with God, we need to be filled with God's word. The, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 6, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. 
in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. God's word is a good treasure to have in our hearts that we must continually be pouring in instead of the things of this world. We must pour in the word of God that it changes us, that helps us understand how to be more like him. And the second thing, which I think is a huge help in having the right heart, is found in the last verses of chapter 12. Jesus, it says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. If we want to be filled, if we feel completely empty, we need to be here. This is uh, what Jesus is saying is, those who do the will of God are my family. Those who do the will of God are my family. And this is the way we must view each other, that we are family. Those who are our physical family don't compare to those who are our spiritual family. Our spiritual family is, is who builds us up, encourages us, helps us to keep going, keep pursuing the will of God and doing God's will. And help, helps us to have that passion and that drive to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit and with righteousness for God's name's sake. So as I consider myself and the struggles that I have, I realize I need to spend more time studying and I need to spend more time with my brethren building one another up, encouraging one another to be faithful to God. We're not going to do an invitation song at this time, but I would like for us to all go to God in a word of prayer, and the invitation will be offered at the end of our song service. Let's pray. Holy and gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word that, that teaches us so much about your will and your desire for us to glorify your name and to live a life that is righteous and pleasing to you. Uh, Lord, we, we recognize that there may be someone here who is a stubborn and rebellious heart against you, uh, who has not submitted their life to you and repented of their sins and, and sought to, to fill their life with you. We pray, Lord, that you will bless them, uh, help them to have the right heart, help them to make the right decision before it's eternally too late, uh, and before their heart gets even more hardened, Lord, please help them to make that decision this morning to turn their lives over to you and to put you as uh, the, the first in their life. Help us to be an encouragement uh, to all those who are around us. Help us to lift one another up. Uh, and help us, Lord, as we feel empty, as we, as we make mistakes, and as we fail to do all that you have given us to do. Help us to turn our lives around. Uh, to be filled with your spirit, with your will, with your ways, with your word, uh, and, and filled with strength. Renew us that we might serve you better and that we might glorify you uh, and bear fruit for you. Thank you, Lord, for each one here this morning. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for Jesus who provides for us the forgiveness that we so desperately need. 
Uh, please be, be with us throughout the remainder of this service, and as we sing, help us to lift our hearts in song, uh, help us to build up one another, uh, and to, to encourage one another to do good works for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.